It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, struck a more hawkish tone this week as higher inflation in America continues, China's economy slows, and the spread of the Omicron variant triggers a fresh wave of restrictions around the globe. Is the world economy caught between a rock and a hard place? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and in today's show, we assess the threats to global growth. We'll hear from Carmen Reinhardt, Chief Economist at the World Bank, about why emerging markets face a triple whammy. The concerns are not cookie cutter across the EMs, but what I am saying concretely is they're a lot riskier at the moment that they were a couple of years ago. So, you know, it can be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. We'll ask whether China can manage the reckoning for its bloated property sector. It may be a bit confusing for them. I think it takes them a little bit longer than usual to understand the severity of the downturn and then act. And how a new COVID-19 variant might complicate the task of keeping the American economy from overheating. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? In in economics, all these forces interact with one another and, and muck up the story that you're telling. Cancelled flights, faltering stock markets, feverishly analysed briefings, talk of more lockdowns. The news feels very familiar. Very little is certain at the moment about the Omicron variant of COVID-19, not even how to pronounce it. Our sister podcast, Babbage, this week assesses what we know for sure about the science of Omicron. But as governments weigh up how to respond to the variant spread, they have a host of experiences to draw on. The economic costs have been estimated. Strategies have been tested. Some have plainly worked better than others. Lessons have been learned. Can they be applied to this new test? Henry Kerr, our economics editor, is exploring the difficult calculus facing the global economy ahead of its third pandemic year. Henry Kerr, welcome to Money Talks. Good to be here, Patrick. Let's start with this latest statement from Jerome Powell. He was testifying with Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, before Congress. Inflation has run well above 2% for long enough. Powell suggested it's time to stop talking about transitory inflation. The word transitory has different meanings to different people. It's probably a good time to retire that word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. And he went on to express support for faster tapering. The economy is very strong and inflationary pressures are high and and it is therefore appropriate, in my view, to consider wrapping up the taper of our asset purchases, which we actually announced at the November meeting, perhaps a few months sooner. Henry, how do you read the reaction to his statement so far? Has he made the right call? I think what's interesting about this is that when the news of the Omicron variant broke, 
people assumed and markets assumed that would mean the Fed might step back from its plans to tighten monetary policy, which previously had been accelerating. If anything, people were expecting faster tapering of QE in in December and markets were pricing uh, perhaps three rate rises next year. And that fell back a bit. But Powell's comment seems to suggest that he was still committed to tightening monetary policy and indeed seemed to give up on one part of the Fed's communication strategy, which was the use of this word transitory to describe inflation and even suggested that the Omicron variant might be an inflationary force because it might keep workers from returning to the labour force, which is something that needs to happen in America for inflation to come down. So it definitely was a sort of hawkish moment. I'm not surprised markets fell back slightly. That doesn't mean that it's wrong because Omicron could have those effects, but it just was a bit of a surprise. Now, Powell's comments come in the context of a week of news that's felt rather like a grim deja vu. Just how different is the state of the global economy now compared to when fears of the Delta variant began spreading a few months ago, or even looking back to 2020, when governments were first bringing in blanket restrictions in response to what was then a very new threat? Well, certainly compared to the spring of 2020, the situation is completely different. It's better in some respects, and it's worse in others. So the good news is that economies now have learned to operate around the virus to a far greater degree than they could when it first struck and they had no experience of, for instance, mass working from home or greater demand for goods and less for services. On an estimate by Goldman Sachs, the sensitivity of GDP to mobility, the amount people move around in the economy, is only about a third of what it was in the spring of 2020, which suggests that we can implement some sorts of restrictions and have them be less costly than they would have been in the spring. But the world economy has a host of other problems, which it didn't have back then, uh, most notably high inflation. And so the way in which the variant is going to interact with the economy is different from how it might have even a few months ago when Delta emerged. Okay, so how should people think about the likely impact of Omicron and of the further restrictions that may be brought in at this point in their recovery? Well, I would break it up geographically. In Europe, we were already seeing a move towards new restrictions even before Omicron was identified in South Africa because cases were surging. And the key question is, to what extent does the variant cause an increase in those restrictions? I think that restrictions are less likely to get uh, severe in America because they've been less severe than in, in Europe throughout the pandemic. But there, the key question is, What's it going to do for inflation, which is probably the biggest economic problem troubling America at the moment? And, you know, even before the variant emerged, we were expecting inflation to continue to rise over the coming months, possibly even hitting or exceeding 7%, which is truly extraordinary in the context of the past decade. And then if you go to China, the question is, what does the new variant mean for their zero COVID policy, which will not tolerate any infections. And that also comes in the context of a slowing Chinese economy generally. And the new variant has to really be assessed in the the context of those problems. We'll turn to China in more detail later on in the show. But before we do, can we just probe a little bit more in the American context in particular about inflation? How do you see the underlying causes of inflation, like supply chain disruption and shift between goods and services, being affected by these developments? It's quite complex because 
When the virus first struck, it was straightforwardly a shock that reduced inflation because services prices collapsed. And indeed, the first pass has to be that Omicron's bad for the American economy and that therefore it's going to ease inflationary pressure. We've obviously seen a a big fall in oil prices in anticipation of lower global demand uh, because of the emergence of the variant. So that has to be your sort of first pass at it. However, inflation's a complex phenomenon. And as you mentioned, has been driven by uh, lots of things. It's been driven by disruption to global production caused by the virus. And that disruption might get worse. And the other thing is that As the pandemic has progressed, gradually we've had more and more goods inflation because governments using stimulus programs maintained household incomes and and consumer spending, but that spending shifted, as you identified, from services, indoor dining and that sort of thing, to goods spending. And so goods prices have gone up a lot. One of the things you were hoping would happen in 2022 was that consumers would revert to a more normal pattern of spending. But if you have a new variant, which causes disruption in that return to normality, then you may, in fact, prolong that inflationary dynamic. And so what happens to demand for goods matters a lot too. Governments have already moved to shut down some international travel, particularly from Southern Africa. I mean, scientists in South Africa were very, very quick to report this variant and sequence its genome. And from an epidemiological perspective, that was a huge achievement and a service to the rest of the world. But from an economic perspective, well, you've got the direct costs of the variant, but also many people living there that feel that with travel bans, rich countries are punishing an emerging market already under severe stress for its honesty. What do you think about that debate? I think it's definitely true that emerging markets suffer greatly from travel bans, especially ones that rely a lot on tourism. However, ultimately, the whole world economy will do better the greater the virus is under control. And so I can understand the instinct in the rich world to try to give themselves as much time as possible to understand the variant and so lay the groundwork for a stronger economy, you know, six months down the line than you might have if you kept travel going. So I think it's it's a really tough question to answer, but I can understand why the rich world has done what it's done. If we're talking about emerging economies more broadly, why might they be more vulnerable to these uh, forces that we're talking about? I think emerging economies at the moment have to grapple with lots of forces. Obviously, they've got the domestic impact of the pandemic, they've got the impact of travel bans, and there's also the prospect of tighter monetary policy in the US, stemming from the fact that the US is overheating, and that's where the importance of inflation comes in. But there's certainly a lot of forces to contend with at the moment uh, in the emerging world. Thanks, Henry. So to better understand this particular combination of challenges facing emerging markets, our trade and international economics editor, Ryan Avent, has been talking to Carmen Reinhardt, chief economist of the World Bank. It's pretty confident that the direction is not a favourable one, even if we're not looking at significant increases, but something much more gradual, notwithstanding the recent remarks coming from the Federal Reserve, I think the the approach will still be much softer tempered by concerns about recovery and, and, and uncertainty. Having said that, emerging markets also have been levering up like everyone else. Debt levels have risen. And unlike the advanced economies in which you've seen debt levels increase, 
but interest rates and debt servicing remain low. That's not true for emerging markets. Debt servicing costs have been on the rise. When international interest rates rise, that has a multiplier effect on emerging markets because country risk premium also tends to increase and, and often gets reflected on credit ratings. The concerns are not cookie cutter across the EMs, but what I am saying concretely is they're a lot riskier at the moment that they were a couple of years ago. So, you know, it can be the proverbial straw that, you know, broke the camel's back. Well, and and thinking about that, are there things that rich countries or that the big international institutions can and should be doing to help low and middle income countries that are potentially facing quite a difficult situation next year? The answer is yes. Let me start with the debt service suspension initiative. This was at the outbreak of COVID in the spring of 2020 so that countries could funnel those resources to emergency needs associated with the pandemic. It worked in the right direction, but the outcome was disappointing. It is disappointing because to this day, and it's slated to end at the end of this year, there was no private sector participation. So the scale of temporary debt relief was much smaller than what potentially could have been. Last year, the G20 around this time came out with a common framework uh, for debt treatments. This is really to help restructure the debts of countries that that are insolvent. And that's critical for for those countries being able to recover, right? With with a debt overhang, with with being shut out of, of credit markets, the impact that has on poverty, on, on, on recovery, on all the social indicators is, is, is very significant. What has happened in the last year? Well, we haven't had a single debt restructure, not, not with a common framework. So I think revisiting how advanced economies can help expedite uh, some of the imminent debt restructuring needs is a good starting point. In, in terms of the debt burdens that low middle income countries face. It seems like some substantial share are owed to China. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how you see China's approach to the burden of debt, whether they're likely to be a uh, a helpful partner in, in sort of addressing some of these um, issues. Look, China uh, succinctly is bigger than the entire Paris Club creditors combined. And, and the approach China has had is not an approach that will solve the uh, debt overhang of the country. Typically, most of the Chinese episodes of restructuring involve some cash flow relief, meaning you get a grace period, but not really any kind of debt write down or even necessarily a better set of terms in terms of interest rates. So consequently, the problem is delayed rather than addressed. But let me say the reluctance to move to bigger haircuts, much much more debt relief, is not just China. I don't think there is so far great appetite on the part of the advanced economies. What one encounters 
is the response, well, we did that before and here we are again. So so it's going to require everyone. Another sort of wild card that the world is confronting now is the state of the Chinese economy more broadly dealing with potentially a big property market slowdown or or even crash. How likely is it, do you think, that, that China experiences a, a hard landing? And if, if it were to, how would that affect the outlook for emerging markets more broadly? After the 2008-2009 crisis, China was the engine of growth for recovery in the emerging markets. That was also reflected in booming commodity prices, but also new lending. And, and, and this, we're, we're dealing with a very different scenario If you look actually at the correlation between Chinese growth, long-term five-year, seven-year averages, and the growth of many commodity producers in in, in Latin America, for example, it's a very strong correlation. At the moment, we've had a rebound in commodity prices. How much of that is also connected to uh, supply stories, to the inflation story? But it's certainly not connected to the kind of healthier, double-digit, big investment growth in China that we had a decade ago and a decade and a half ago. So that's another question mark when one looks at 2022. There are more of those question marks than I'd I'd really prefer. (laughs) (laughs) Our thanks to Carmen Reinhart and Ryan Avent. Now, normally at this point, I'd remind you to subscribe to The Economist's Cutting Edge Global Analysis or rate and review the podcast. But this week, I won't do any of that. Instead, I have a special favour to ask. We really want to know what you think of our work. What do you like about Economist podcasts? How, where and when do you tune in? What could we do better? Now is your moment. Our listener survey is open at economist.com slash survey. That's economist.com slash money talk survey. It'll help us bring you more of what you like to listen to. So please do have your say. You can find the link in the notes for this episode. secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Henry, some countries have tried to deal with the pandemic by pursuing a a strategy of zero COVID. Now, most are in the process of giving that up. There's one very important holdout, of course, which is China. What sort of difficulties might that create for the Chinese economic authorities? Well, zero COVID was already getting more difficult thanks to the Delta variant, and that's contributed to the uh, countries like New Zealand taking steps towards giving up that strategy. China has stuck to it. Uh, In recent days, health officials in China have been quoted as saying that it kind of proves zero COVID right. The way this policy works is that as soon as you have any uh, infection in your borders, you clamp down very strictly on it. 
with a localized lockdown, and that's what China's been doing this year. And it's managed to maintain zero COVID, uh, but it has slowed its economic growth. Now, if the disease becomes more infectious, then uh, you're more likely to have to implement those policies. They may need to be uh, stricter or more frequent to contain the outbreaks. And it also means that if you have to transition out of zero COVID because it's proving untenable, that that transition might become more disruptive. The more infectious the disease, the more difficult the choices that are imposed on you by the zero COVID strategy. Well, in Hong Kong, our China economics editor, Simon Cox, has been exploring exactly that dilemma in more depth. He spoke to Wang Tao, head of Asia Economics for the investment bank UBS, and asked her whether China's zero COVID policy makes its economy more or less vulnerable at this point. I think at this moment, it's probably less vulnerable. It obviously, the new variant poses a, a huge new uncertainty for the world. But the immediate impact on China, I think, should be relatively small. The borders are effectively closed. Domestic restrictions are very, very much in effect. China is also pushing through vaccination, testing, contact tracing, quarantine, and so on. There will be indirect impact, of course, with many countries started to tighten restrictions supply chain blockage may get worse. Actually, the switch from goods to services may slow in other countries, which actually is not that bad for China's exports. Restrictions could tighten, especially ahead of the Winter Olympics and and Chinese New Year. Our baseline currently assumes that domestic restrictions would ease considerably in the second quarter and from then onwards. So that could be delayed and so that will hurt domestic consumption. And what about international restrictions, restrictions on travel? It's quite difficult to get into and out of China now. Do you see any prospect of those restrictions easing? Uh, I think the Chinese government want to take a very conservative approach and want to observe how other countries are doing with this uh, living with COVID strategy and also, I suppose, buy some time for additional, more effective vaccination or before they gradually open up. So I don't think the chance of opening up international border next year is a good one. Now, obviously, COVID is not the only problem or challenge that China's economy has been facing recently. Uh, We heard a lot about power shortages. How is that problem panning out at the moment? Power shortage is actually getting better. So one of the important reasons of power shortage is that China's uh, growth this year has been extremely energy intensive. Then the government adjusted the policy, raised the power tariff, increased coal supply. But at the same time, of course, China is experiencing a property slowdown. So demand for heavy industrial products is also coming down. So we we actually think that by first quarter next year, that's uh, going to largely dissipate. Well, let's turn to the property sector then that you've already mentioned. Uh, How big an impact do you think it will have on growth in in the year ahead? Well, property sector in China is arguably the most important sector. We estimate it drives about 25% of GDP growth. So if without any policy easing, the current property downturn, which is a result of combination of changes of fundamentals, policy tightening, the spillover of Evergrande, trouble. This could actually lead to housing sales and starts decline by 20% next year and property investment going down 10%. So that's going to be a a drag of at least 2.5% of GDP. However, uh, we are assuming that policy would ease gradually over time 
And so our baseline forecast is that uh, this is only half. So 10% decline in sales and starts and 5% decline in, in property investment. And so then we can still get around 5-ish percent growth next year. On, on this question of easing, uh, many people have said that the pain threshold seems to have risen. The government's willing to see a sharper slowdown in growth before it eases policy. Uh, do you agree? And, and why is that? I think to some extent the pain threshold may have risen, but I think that's not it, though. I don't think the Chinese government is dogmatic. They are quite pragmatic. So one reason they haven't really acted on property is also property slowdown has been quite sudden. It has decoupled with commodity prices and PPI. PPI being the producer price inflation, the sort of upstream uh, inflation. And usually when there is a serious China property downturn, you will see deflation. You will see, you know, all these uh, commodity prices going down. That didn't happen. So I think it may be a bit confusing for them. I think it takes them a little bit longer than usual to understand the severity of the downturn and then act. Now, assuming they do act at some point, will their levers work? Does stimulus still work in China? That's a very good question. So we actually, UBS actually have recently conducted a housing intention survey and purchase intention indeed has been the weakest in the last six years. However, we do see that people's expectation of future price increase in housing is still quite high and actually increased. And they complained that uh, policies were too tight. So that gives us some confidence that maybe if they ease, there will be, be some effect. However, the danger, of course, is if the government actually react too late, too slow, and uh, when price actually starts to decline for quite some time, it may be hard to turn expectations around. You mentioned earlier the strength of exports recently. Uh, one consequence of that is that the currency has also been quite strong. Some people think it's a bit too strong. But, but if the Fed does go ahead and tighten perhaps two hikes uh, in 2022, will that make life easier or harder for China? Actually, it may not make uh, life easier for China. We think the uh, Fed is not going to tighten next year. But if they tighten, and if the ECB doesn't, and so as a result, the dollar strengthens against other major currencies, it may force the uh, CNY, the RMB, to strengthen together with the dollar, which has happened this year. So it's, it's not necessarily easier for, for China. Our expectation is actually next year, the RMB probably will depreciate a bit, given that the rate differential between US and China will narrow and China's growth is going to slow. And also the trade surplus probably will narrow a bit as well. So, Henry, what do you make of the factors that Dr. Wang identified there? And how might the outlook for China influence that of other countries in 2022? What's striking is just the sheer number of forces that are currently at work in China's economy, potentially slowing growth. So it's not just this uh, renewed threat from the virus and its interaction with the zero COVID policy they've chosen. It's also 
uh, the property slowdown, the fact that people aren't sure how monetary stimulus is going to work if policies are in place designed to cool the property market. Then there's also other concerns such as uh, decarbonising the energy sector and uh, political interference in the economy. And there's just an awful lot of reasons you can come up with at the moment to worry about China. And then the growth numbers are not looking good either. So uh, I do think China is a source of real concern for the world economy at the moment. And you asked how it affected other countries. China is, by a large margin, the world's biggest consumer of commodities like aluminium, coal, cotton and soybeans. So it spills over to other countries uh, in terms of demand for their exports. And we've seen in recent decades, gradually, the importance of China's economic cycle rising for the world economy as a whole. If China slows, that really does matter for global growth. Might there be parallels here with that period in the 2010s when emerging markets got a rough deal, when you know the Fed withdrew the monetary support provided during the global financial crisis, there was a strong dollar, and there was a pronounced slowdown in China at the same time. Might we be looking at something similar here? Yes, I mean, it's definitely the case that you can observe those two forces at work again. Uh, what happened in the late 2010s is you had monetary policy divergence in the world with America's economy uh, sort of racing ahead and uh, interest rate rises in America and, as you say, a strong dollar. And at the same time, uh, around 2015, you had a real slowdown in, in China. So if you're an emerging market that's exposed to both higher interest rates and slower uh, growth in China, uh, that's bad news. So we could have the same sort of dynamic in play now, uh, of course, in in a world with a pandemic, it's all it's all it's all a bit different. But it but both of those forces are are, are very important for many countries. How do you reckon the slowing China and uncertainty over Omicron will inform the Fed's discussions over the coming months on the timeline for for, for tightening policy? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? In in economics, all these forces interact with one another and and and, and muck up the story that you're telling. It is the case that if China slows dramatically, that washes back up in the rest of the world, and that may in fact dampen the need for uh, monetary tightening in, in, in America. It's also the case that if the pandemic takes a real turn to, for the worse because of Omicron, that might delay the need for monetary tightening. So um, it really does depend on America's inflation outlook and, and what happens there. And that's been the number one question in economics this year, I would say, and it will continue to be the case in 2022. Just what are the forces driving an American inflation? Because that's ultimately going to determine the future for American monetary policy. So, Henry, as you said, it was already a very complicated economic picture before this latest variant came along. And now policymakers have to factor in yet another element of uncertainty. If you had to rank those concerns, where does the Omicron variant come against the other long term factors that we've been discussing? The way I'd look at it is that Omicron is making everything slightly incrementally worse. It complicates the inflation picture. It means that Europe's lockdowns are going to probably end up needing to be stricter. And it's yet another thing for China to worry about. But I'm actually somewhat optimistic with respect to a lot of the world in that we know that we have the technology to create vaccines that are targeted at new variants. The key question is whether we can get them approved and produced quickly enough. Economies have had a lot of time to adapt 
to the pandemic. I think where you end up being most pessimistic is when you look at China because of the sheer number of problems that it is dealing with and the fact that it's really hard to see how they're going to get away from the zero COVID policy, which gets harder as the disease becomes more infectious. So Omicron makes everything a little bit worse, but I don't think it leaves China in the worst position of all. Henry, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget our listener survey. It's open for limited time only. So to give us your hot takes, do go to economist.com slash survey. Once again, you'll find the link in the show notes. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer. And the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London... This is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.